If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. Welcome to And Security for All. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. I'm also the CEO of FutureCon Events. We produce cybersecurity events all over North America. As you might guess, we've been in a virtual uh, place for the last year, but we're super excited that starting in August in Dallas, Texas, we're going to have our first live show and then many more after Super excited about that. So if you guys would like to check out our website at futureconevents.com, make sure you do that because there's tons of great resources and information we can provide you there. Today is um, another day that we are here on LinkedIn Live in correlation with our live show on Voice of America. If you want to find out more about our show, you can go to Voice of America in the business sector and check out and security for all. We have many past guests that we've been talking about some pretty important topics relating to cybersecurity and the state of where we are today. So um, I highly recommend you guys follow the show and go visit our past shows on any place where you listen to your podcast. Today, I have another great guest, another great topic that we're going to talk about. We're going to be talking about big breaches, cybersecurity lessons learned for everyone. This is the book that Dr. Neil Deswani, he was the co-author of this book. He is the co-director of the Stanford Advanced Cybersecurity Program. He's the president of Deswani Enterprises. He is security consultant and training firm. He served as at a variety of research and development, teaching and executive management roles like Semantic, LifeLock, Twitter, Descent, Google, Stanford University, NTT, Docomo, US Labs, Yodali, Telecorded Technologies, which was formerly Blue Core. At Semantic, he was the Chief Information Security Officer. At LifeLock, he was the company-wide Chief Information Security Officer. He frequently gives talks at industry and academic um, conferences. He was actually a keynote speaker at one of our recent events um, in our virtual conferences right now. So today, very excited to have him. We're going to talk about his book, Big Breach Cybersecurity Lessons for Everyone. So welcome, Neil, to the show. Thank you, Kim, for having me. Looking forward to the discussion today. Well, congratulations, first off, on your book. Thank you. So why don't we just like get right into it and just start talking about the book. Um, can you tell us just a bit of an overview about that book? And there's so much in the book that this hour is going to go very, very fast. If you can um, just give us an overview of that book. Yeah, sure. I'll give a quick synopsis. So the, over the past 15 years, there have been over 9,000 breaches that have been reported. And then there's also been a whole bunch of mega breaches. And one of the theses behind the book is that there is a relatively small number of root causes behind all of these breaches. So in the first half of the book, we explore the root causes and we explore the histories and stories of some of the biggest breaches that have t taken place, uh, ranging from uh, OPM to Yahoo to JPMorgan Chase to um, Capital One. And then in the second half of the book, we basically provide a roadmap to recovery so that organizations, starting from the board level, um, can get a handle on the cybersecurity problem so that hopefully we'll have fewer breaches in the future. So one of the things when I was uh, skimming through your book, because I haven't had the opportunity to read it yet, and there is a lot of information in that book, I was noticing in the beginning when, you know, before you even got into your chapters, you were doing some overview of the book, but you had a lot of um, accolades or acknowledgments to a lot of people in your history and the former places that you've worked, like Semantic and Lock Life, that um, influenced you and 
helped you, you know, kind of get you geared up for this book. Like, can you tell us a little bit about your past and, and how your past history, you know, moved you into inspiring you to write this book? Sure, I'd be happy to. So let me mention that I'm a scientist and engineer by background. Uh, I earned my PhD in computer science from Stanford uh, back in 2005 and then pretty much joined uh, Google uh, right after that. I spent uh, a few years at Google helping fight uh, click fraud and uh, malicious advertising um, and then left Google to start a company by the name of Dacient. Um, we, we were funded by Google Ventures as well as a, a set of very reputable former CEOs and investors. Um, and we basically uh, got acquired by Twitter to help them uh, fight uh, click fraud. And uh, we also made advancements uh, to protect uh, people from malvertising and all the tweets and whatnot. Um, and then the impetus for this book really started uh, when I was leaving Twitter to take on the chief information security officer role at LifeLock back in 2015. So I was moving into a role where effectively I had end accountability for protecting the personal information of all 300 plus Americans because uh, LifeLock, in addition to monitoring uh, things like uh, credit and providing identity theft protection for its several million members, also owned a full-fledged credit agency as part of its subsidiaries that we use to identify things like fraud rings and, and proactively uh, help our members. And uh, so one of the things I, I told myself is, well, I first want to understand how many other organizations have gotten breached. And, and that's where the, the research for the book really, really started. It was uh, before I started as CISO at LifeLock. And uh, I kept all those lessons in mind in putting in place uh, countermeasures um, to, to defend uh, LifeLock and its customers' data. Um, and so that's really where the book started. So I, you know, there's, it's, there's so much to talk about, but one of the things that I was noticing and it kind of made me reflect, I've been in the industry for 20 something years and, you know, you had different references and you were talking about some of the summaries of the attacker types and motivations from the mid 1980s until now. So like, let's just talk about that and kind of reflect on what were we seeing in the mid 1980s? We all know what we're seeing now, but but just the the perplexity of the differences of where we were then and where we are now. Sure. Back in the 1980s, the uh, threat landscape was very, very different. Uh, we, you know, the, the the personal computer revolution was taking place. Um, you know, a lot of companies were starting to leverage more and more uh, computing in their businesses. Um, one of the main threats at the time were worms and viruses. Um, and most of those worms and viruses were written by amateur hackers that just, you know, wanted to experiment or perhaps make a name for themselves. Um, but uh, that's when things started. And what we started seeing is that in the late 90s, when the Internet started getting aggressively commercialized, um, what we saw was that the types of attackers had started changing. As we got into the early 2000s, where there was a lot of e-commerce taking place on the commercial internet, both amateur cyber criminals and then organized cyber criminals started realizing that they could take advantage of attacks like phishing to, to make money. And what we saw is that even in the viruses and the malware that would be getting written, there was more and more, increasingly more financial motivations behind behind uh, the attacks. Uh, so so that, that pretty much uh, took us out until, say, the mid-2000s. I'd say in the mid-2000s, uh, the U.S. government and various parts of it started having concerns that there might be uh, not just organized cyber criminals that we have to deal with, but they, there was a concern that we'd have to start dealing with foreign nation-state adversaries mounting cyber attacks. And a number of government agencies started putting out a whole bunch of warnings um, and the federal government uh, and state governments started doing more audits 
only to find that most of the time their information security postures were not where they needed to be. And what we were able to see by the time that uh, 2015 came around is that attackers were able to steal all 20 million government employee identities, uh, including data on their SF-86 forms. Uh, and that was done by a um, suspected Chinese attacker. In fact, uh, there was a, a Chinese uh, individual that was indicted uh, for that. So uh, that pretty much covers where, where we were from the mid 80s all the way up to up to now, pretty much where the threat of foreign nations and adversaries has become much more significant, uh, especially in the aftermath of the SolarWinds hack, where uh, suspected Russian attackers were able to uh, not only infiltrate uh, SolarWinds, but um, you know, use use that software to then break into uh, nine or so government agencies, including the U.S. Department of Commerce, Treasury, Department of Justice, uh, Department of Homeland Security, and about a hundred other private sector organizations. Well, you know, the word nation state has become relatively new in the last couple of years. And now, you know, you hear it all the time. And when I say new, I, I, I mean new for the non-cybersecurity people, the people that turn on the news and they listen to the news and what's going on. You hear about nation state all the time. So when do you think that this became such an issue that all of a sudden, you know, China, Russia, whatever country it might be, decided, okay, this can be a business for us. There's a business in making money. When, when do you think that started to evolve? Uh, well, that started to evolve, at least in the security community, in the, in the mid to late 2000s. And so to, to just give, um, you know, an example, in 2009, uh, there was a group of uh, Chinese attackers that broke into Google and three dozen other high-tech companies in an attack called the Aurora attack, in which the attackers used a malware drive-by download uh, to infect machines. And their, their goal was actually to steal intellectual property. So the goal has, has even for the nation states, has not been, has not been money, um, but is typically something else, uh, you know, intellectual property, control over systems, uh, espionage, as was the case with the recent SolarWinds hack. Uh, so the motivations have just uh, grown and become more broad and more diverse. But I'd say it was in the, you know, 2005, 2009 timeframe that uh, foreign nation state adversaries started really picking up their activity. Well, that is kind of the perfect transition into some of the chapters of your book. You know, chapter one, you're outlining the root cause of breaches to date. What would you, before we talk about, and then chapter two through eight, you're going to talk about some of the biggest breaches in reverse chronological order. So let's let's just go back because, you know, and, and define what that means, the root cause of the breaches and, and, and how you researched that and what you came up with. Sure, sure. So first of all, let me let me just chat about, you know, this whole idea of looking for root causes to an extent uh, emanated from uh, General Electric and Six Sigma, and they encourage organizations to, when something goes wrong, ask the question why, uh, maybe five times uh, as, a, as a guideline. And, you know, you, I think it makes sense to, to ask why certainly a few times. If you ask too many times, uh, you'll you'll end up with uh, with with uh, causes like okay uh, so let me let me go ahead and mention that in our study there were both managerial root causes and there were technical root causes the managerial root causes were threefold uh, organizations get hacked because from a managerial perspective there's typically a failure to prioritize a failure to invest in uh, and a failure to successfully execute on cybersecurity initiatives. Those are the three managerial root causes. The six technical root causes, and I, by the way, I thought it was just pretty interesting that the overwhelming majority of breaches came back to these six technical root causes. They are number one, phishing and account takeover, two, malware, three, software vulnerabilities, both first party and third party, four, third party compromise and abuse, uh, five, unencrypted data, and number six, inadvertent employee mistakes. So if you if you can protect your, if you can prioritize and invest in cybersecurity appropriately and focus on putting in place countermeasures for those six 
technical root causes, uh, you will be much, 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 much more secure than otherwise and will have protected yourself from the overwhelming majority of these root causes. Now, uh, I, I mentioned, for instance, phishing and account takeover as one of the technical root causes. Phishing has been with us for a very long time. And uh, you, you might ask, okay, well, you know, what's the, you know, if you ask, well, why is phishing possible? You can end up with reasons like, okay, well, there was no authentication designed into SMTP, the simple mail transfer protocol. And so as a result, anybody on the internet can forward messages to anybody else on the internet claiming to be whoever they want to be um, and, you know, be writing from whatever domain they, they, they might like to. But at the same time, in, in our book, what we did is we said, you know, if we, if we, go, if we go that far back, it's, it's really not something that most uh, chief information security officers can do anything about. So to be practical, we basically came up with a set, set of technical root causes that chief information security officers and security professionals can actually do something about. So it's interesting looking now at these next chapters and it's kind of a walk down memory lane a little bit. But, you know, before you go over, if you can take us through some of these um, beginning breaches, um, starting with Capital One, do you, my question to you is, you know, now when we look at the dark web, most of our information is out there on the dark web. Did that start, do you think, when we started getting some of these breaches, beginning with Capital One, and as we go forward to some of the others that you discussed in these chapters two through eight? So let me mention that there, there is indeed uh, a lot of stolen data from breaches that does appear on the dark web. That said, I would say, and dark, the dark web is, of course, a set of internet sites and websites that are used by, by cyber criminals and ha hackers and attackers of all kinds. Um, but I, I, I'm not quite sure I would go and say that most of this stolen information is on the dark web. I'd say that some of it is, but there's a whole bunch of it that has not shown up on the dark web. For instance, I think if we look back at the 20 million government identities that were stolen by suspected Chinese attackers, um, you know, going going back to the 2015 announcements from the Office of Personnel Management, um, I don't believe that data has shown up on the dark web. And that kind of makes sense because if you're a foreign nation state adversary, you know, your goal is not to, you know, put that data on a market and sell it. Rather, uh, your goal might be to use it for espionage purposes. So, so for instance, uh, after the Office of Personnel Management was, was hacked, uh, you know, shortly following uh, that in Marriott, uh, Marriott, uh, the hotel chain was hacked in 2018. And so, you know, if one thinks about the combination of the data that was stolen from OPM in terms of who are the government agents, right? Um, and by the way, even though the CIA kept their own personnel database, uh, most other government agencies use OPM as kind of their chief HR resource. And so, you know, let's say, let's say if you're the Chinese government and you want to figure out who are the spies in your country, well, what you can do is you can look at the, the, the data that was taken from OPM and you can look at which aliases are on file at your state department and do not appear in the set of data stolen from OPM. And that gives you your list of candidate CIA agents, right? Um, and, and not only uh, were the foreign nation states interested in who the identities are, but with the Marriott breach, they were interested in, well, where is, you know, where have those people been staying, right? And where have they been traveling around the world? And so with, with Marriott uh, breach that gave, uh, that was also a suspected Chinese attacker. And it uh, could give somebody that could merge both of those data sets information on not only who are the spies, but where have they been traveling and perhaps what, what have they been doing? Um, so I, I think there, there's interesting relations between all these different uh, breaches. Um, but to, to talk about Capital One for a second, Capital One is interesting because it has been, at least as of, as of today, the largest cloud security breach of all time in which over 100 million credit applications were stolen. But that attack was actually not done by an organized cyber criminal. It was not done by a nation state. It was done by a single ex-Amazon employee 
who also didn't have any insider knowledge, but just happened to have some good technical skills. And the concern that I have, at least in the cloud security world, is that uh, the cloud is still sufficiently new that if a lone attacker, a former employee of Amazon, can steal 100 million credit applications from one of the largest financial institutions in the country, uh, it concerns me as to what is the state of security for just data stored in, uh, in, in the cloud in general. And, and by the way, the cloud providers are doing a lot. And so some of the cloud providers, for instance, uh, Google Cloud Platform provides a lot of tools on top of the infrastructure that they provide to allow organizations to help secure their application security as well. And I'd say the different cloud providers are at a different state of that. But, but generally, when it comes to cloud security, we may still be in the early innings here. So, so I hope that provides some, some perspective for uh, the different um, you know, motivations even across the breaches and, uh, you know, and, 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 and you know, talks a little bit about the, um, the type of attacker that, uh, that, that broke into Capital One in 2019. So let's jump back a little bit to Chapter 8 when we're in 2013 and 2014, and we're talking about Target and J.P. Morgan. So, and, and where I want to go with this is if, you know, we're, we started going backwards, you know, the wrong way, because I want to kind of move from 2014, 2013 to where we are today to find out what lessons are we learning as we go back and look at these. So let's talk about Target. I can't even believe that was in 2013. That seems like it was yesterday when that happened. So time flies. Um, so, so give us a little bit of, you know, what you're kind of talking about with the Target and the J.P. Morgan attack. Sure. So let me mention one of the things that was common with Target and J.P. Morgan Chase and the two breaches there is that both of those breaches occurred due to third-party compromise. In the case of Target, it was their heating and air conditioning provider by the name of Fuzzy Mechanical Services that was broken into first, uh, and then the attackers... Uh, use the stolen network credentials that they got from Fozzie Mechanical Services to pivot and uh, laterally move within Target's network because they had the two networks tied together and the networks were not segmented as much as they could have been and they were a bit flat. Uh, and then with J.P. Morgan Chase, it was also a third party, but a, but, but a different third party, the third party compromise that eventually resulted in the breach at J.P. Morgan Chase uh, was by uh, Simcoe Data Systems. Simcoe Data Systems was running a website for J.P. Morgan Chase's charitable marathon races. And the attackers compromised uh, a Simcoe Data Systems web certificate, which basically allowed them to get clear text access to the passwords that were being used for the, um, for the, JP, for, for the J.P. Morgan Chase charitable marathon race website. But Unfortunately, many employees were using the same password credentials for not only for the charitable marathon race website and for their corporate systems at J.P. Morgan Chase. But you know, you've got to ask the question: Well, you know, this is a big bank; they were spending over two hundred fifty million annually on their security. Surely, they must have had two-factor authentication, so that even if passwords got stolen, you know, the attacker shouldn't be able to get in. And indeed, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase did have two-factor authentication deployed almost everywhere. There was at least one server which did not have two-factor authentication enabled. And so given that attackers were able to steal passwords, some of which were shared with J.P. Morgan Chase corporate, and then log in at that one server that did not have the two-factor authentication, that's basically how the attackers got in there. So, so what's common between Target and J.P. Morgan Chase is that they were using suppliers that were less secure than themselves, and basically the attackers broke into the third party first, and then were able to break into the larger organization. And we we've seen that since those two breaches, third party risk, third party compromise, uh, has become a major major issue. Uh, in fact, you know even the recent uh, SolarWinds hack. Uh, SolarWinds was a third party to many government organizations and private sector companies. And so this, this trend around third party compromises continues. And I think now the issue of supply chain security has now become a first class concern, top level concern, even at the highest levels of government. 
So, and I'm, I don't want to spend too much time going through each of these chapters because I want to jump forward in your book. You know, chapter um, seven, you were talking about the Yahoo in 2013. And then we talked about, you talked about in chapter five, the Facebook hacks and the data breaches in that time. And then, you know, we get over to the Capital One, the Marriott. And, you know, I want to jump into the next section. And you were, you did mention in your books that solar winds happened in 2020 and you were just finishing your book. So you have a uh, free book chapter, post this book. So, um, and I'll let you tell our listeners that and I have somebody that's in that made a comment that excited to get a copy of your book. So before we move into more on the second part of this book, first, can you tell our viewers where they can find that um, further information on the solar winds hack and how they can find your book and where they can get your book? Sure. So you can get the book on uh, Amazon or pretty much any any book retailer. Uh, the title is Big Breaches. Uh, the subtitle is Cybersecurity Lessons for Everyone. If you uh, type in, you know, big breaches and say my last name, Daswani, uh, it should it should come right up. We were we were very glad that the that the book debuted on the Amazon bestsellers list for computer hacking books. Uh, so it should be it should be relatively easy to find. We also have a website for the book. So if you just go to bigbreaches.com, you can download the first chapter uh, completely for free. Uh, and that chapter goes through a bunch of root causes and you know the evolution of of breaches uh, to date. Um, the the other thing that I'll mention is that you know we were we were writing the book mostly in 2020. Obviously, there was a lot of research that uh, I, myself and my co-author had done prior to that, but uh, we were mostly writing the book in in 2020. And you know, I, I ideally wanted to include a chapter on the biggest breach in in 2020. And our book deadlines, our chapter deadlines, were uh, all October 15th um, and, and before. And uh, once October 15th hit, we, we simply couldn't add any more content for, to the book if we wanted to actually get it out in early 2021. And so, you know, as, as I was uh, monitoring breaches in uh, 2020, it looked like it was going to be the year of uh, insider attacks. There were attempted insider attacks at Tesla. There were uh, there was a successful insider attack at Spotify. Um, there there were a number of other uh, companies that suffered uh, you know at least attempted insider attacks, and um, I, I thought 2020 was going to be the year of insider attacks. In fact, I just recently gave a talk at the RSA conference on insider attacks, uh, and then of course in December 2020, once the news of the SolarWinds hack uh, came out. Um, you know, basically at that point we said, well, let's let's provide a chapter on that, but it won't be able to make it in the book. So what we'll do, do is we'll post it on the Big Breaches site uh, after uh, afterwards. And you know, the the SolarWinds hack is one that I've been monitoring for some time. I've had uh, a couple conversations with the new CEO at SolarWinds, and uh, we are we are putting together a book chapter around the SolarWinds hack. Um, Keep uh, keep an eye out on the bigbreaches.com website. Sign up, and then we'll go ahead and uh, release that once it's ready. There's been a lot of interesting activity on the SolarWinds hack in the first half of 2021, including the Senate hearings, including additional developments, uh, including uh, SolarWinds themselves. You know, constraining it down to what the root causes of that of that uh, hack were. Uh, so, so go to brickbreaches.com and sign up and uh, download the first chapter for free. And then we'll also announce once the SolarWinds chapter is ready. So in the second, and thank you for that information. In the second part of the book, now you're going to start outlining a roadmap of what people are going to do from the uh, bore level down. And um, it's interesting in that section of the book that you discuss um, the the uh, high, the seven habits of highly effective people, but you break it down to um, seven habits that people need to encode in their behavior to achieve security. We had, I'm not sure if you know who George Finney is, and um, he wrote a book on um, the nine cybersecurity hack habits to 
Secure Your Future? Do you happen to know him? I mean, that's just another great book, and he's just another great. Yeah, I should, I should check that out. I'm, I'm not familiar with that book, but I'll go ahead and check it out. Yeah, that's a great book. Um, but anyway, so let's let's talk about that, like, in Chapter 9. I mean, because when he was on the show, really, if you look at the habits, they're not that hard, you know? So can you break down some of these seven habits that just, you know, and, and you're saying, how are you putting that across the people and how would you want, you know, the CISOs to take that information and deploy that into their company? Sure. Let me go ahead and talk about that. So first of all, let me, let me just provide a little, little background. Um, a, a lot of folks hypothesize and believe that security needs to be built into the culture of an organization if you're going to uh, be able to successfully have a good cybersecurity posture. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a message that's been out there for some time. But the question is, how do you get to that culture? And so both my co-author, Moody Elbayadi, and my, I, we are, we are big fans of Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People decades ago. And one of the things that we really liked about uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits book is that he focused on habits that were universal and timeless. And if you look at his seven habits for personal development, they are they are still as relevant today as when the book was written, I don't know, 30 years ago or so. So basically what we did is we said we want to identify what are the seven habits uh, to achieve security in organizations. And the seven habits, if you if you look at them, some of them are actually similar and parallel, uh, some things that Stephen Covey was talking about. So habit number one uh, for Stephen Covey was be proactive. Uh, and our habit number one to achieve security is to not only be proactive, but be proactive, prepared, and paranoid. Um, and I think that having a, a proactive mindset where you're, you're also paranoid, and you're also thinking about what can, all the different potential things that can go wrong and putting plans in place and having countermeasures in place to deal with all those things, you know, is a right, uh, right next step once you, once you're in the right cultural mindset. Um, Stephen Covey is habit number seven. He, he, he called it sharpen the saw. And uh, we, we renamed that uh, embrace continuous improvement because nothing is ever hundred percent secure. And so you should look at being secure as a, as a journey. It's not a one-time project that you do and then you're done. Rather, you should always be vigilant, always be diligent, and always be looking to improve your security. If you improve it, you know, 1% per day, you know, the compound effect of that is, is, is really significant. But to talk a little bit about some of the other habits that, that are more specific to security, um, you know, habit number two uh, suggests that people should be mission-centric because every organization has a goal. And uh, security uh, may or may not be the most important goal at the organization. And so the, the, the challenge is to figure out, given the goals, given the mission of an organization, how does security fit in? And how do you have it be complementary uh, to, to the goal? Uh, other habits that we, we believe are important are to uh, build security and privacy in. Uh, we think that also, uh, when you're an organization that has many compliance standards to satisfy, that you should focus on security first and achieve the compliance as a side effect. Uh, we also, given that we're scientists and engineers by background, we believe that it's important to measure your security quantitatively and quantitatively. And the only other habit that I'll mention is that given that there's so many things that have to be done right to actually achieve security, the more that you can automate and the less that you have to rely on humans doing the right things each and every time, the more secure you're going to be likely to be. So in chapter 10 and 11, you're starting to provide advice to boards of directors and executives. Do you think that you're, they're starting to, we're starting to get their attention with everything going on? And, and when do you think that that curve has started to happen? Because I know that there's, they're starting to look at bigger budgets for cybersecurity. So where do you think we are with the board of directors and the execs and companies? Sure, happy to, happy to speak about that. And by the way, I think, I think it, it is the job of the board and the CEO to set the right tone at the top and to set the right culture so that you can actually achieve uh, security. Um, 
I think that a lot of boards started taking more notice on cybersecurity, especially as the regulatory fines have been increasing. In 2019, for instance, Facebook was fined over or about $5 billion for uh, violating a privacy consent decree that it was under from the Federal Trade Commission. And uh, a number of other companies, whether it be Marriott, whether it be British Airways, whether it be, you know, there's a number of other airlines that have lost uh, consumer information, they've all been, they've all been fined and the fines are significant. Can, they can sometimes be over a hundred million. Uh, Capital One estimated in 2019 that their total breach costs were going to be upwards of 300 million. So with those kinds of numbers, boards definitely have been taking a lot more notice. And a little bit about the history here. So back in the early 2000s, in the aftermath of the Enron scandal, uh, there were more uh, financial accountability and financial integrity controls put in place. And many boards uh, may have, say, already had an audit committee or then created an audit committee so that the reports around financial compliance could be uh, covered. Um, and what's happened over time is that a significant number of CISOs, given that they have to satisfy all kinds of compliance, security compliance, you know, are reporting that information into the audit committees and presenting the, the, the results of security audits at the, at the audit committees. Um, but I think where the field's gonna go, hopefully, is to have more boards create cybersecurity specific committees, which are focused on the end goal of cybersecurity and not just compliance. Um, I think that when when you focus on compliance and you have you know 200 different controls you need to satisfy and you need to check the box and just make sure you have something in place, that is different than identifying what are the root causes of breach and putting in scientifically effective countermeasures to address those root causes of, of breach. You know, there's certain things uh, like phishing and malware where it's important to not just put something in place, but to put something really good in place if you're going to actually achieve a secure posture. So looking back, you know, at what recently happened with Colonial Pipeline, what do you think are some of the, and, and not everything's been exposed, but what do you see, what are you thinking some of the lessons learned when you have the board of directors and the executives getting together and looking at, hey, I hope that doesn't happen to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Happy to talk about that. So first of all, let me mention that in the, in the Colonial Pipeline attack, they were impacted by a set of ransomware uh, that infected a bunch of their machines, and the attackers demanded a, a ransom if they want to be able to get control of their systems and control of their data back. Uh, ransomware is just type of a malware. It's one of the root causes of breach. But what's interesting specifically about ransomware is that the reason that ransomware attacks can be successful are twofold. First, if an organization doesn't have effective anti-malware defenses in place, and two, is not able to restore systems from backup, then they make themselves, then they're very vulnerable to ransomware attacks. And the, the you know, a lot of organizations might think, oh, you know, I, I, I have backups. So if I get hit by ransomware, I'll just restore from backups. The problem is that most organizations don't regularly practice restoring from backups. And I've heard stats that say that, you know, only 50% of organizations are actually able to restore from a backup when they need to. Not to mention that when a, such a ransomware incident occurs, the, the, the biggest issue may not be getting the data restored back from backup, if you can do that, but the bigger issue is downtime. And we saw with the Colonial Pipeline attack that there was uh, concern days uh, where they couldn't operate and gas prices started going up and you know there, there's significant economic impact there. And if we don't get a handle on these issues, I think that the economic impact is also going to be uh, a heck, a heck of a lot worse. Now, to talk about what happens in terms of the discussions with the CEO and the boards of directors, you know, uh, some 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 organizations say, "Oh, you know, well, we well we have cyber insurance, and so if we if we need to pay out a ransom, then you know we can just call on the claim for the for the um, 
for the ransom from from our insurance. Um, and and that is not, uh, I think, the right way to to, to think about it. Um, we saw that in the colonial pipeline attack, effectively, um, you know, even if they wanted to try to attempt to restore the systems themselves, they were concerned about the amount of time that it would take to do so, and they just decided the CEO made the call to pay the $4.4 million in ransom. You can imagine there was an interesting board discussion about having to make uh, that kind of payment. Uh, and it also sends a signal to the attackers. The signal it sends is that they can be successful and they will get their payment. Um, and it will probably, well, I mean, when one attacker sees that's working, you know, there's a whole bunch of other attackers that also see that and more attackers may decide to enter the game because of the level of state of vulnerability. And so, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of uh, dynamics, uh, you know, that, that take place uh, with the CEO and the board as, as this kind of thing is uh, getting discussed. But, you know, the, be the, best, the best place to be is in a situation where, you know, you, you, you as a board member are, are not going to be concerned that you might get sued uh, because of one of these types of tax and you paid out a ransom and it had financial impact on the company, et cetera. Uh, the best thing is to just to protect yourself and defend yourself appropriately rather than rely on reactive mitigations uh, like paying ransoms and uh, cyber insurance. Which kind of goes into chapter 12 and 13 is the options that organizations can employ for technology and defenses for each technical root causes of breaches. But that's a big statement to say because there's so much out there, you know. I, you know, I, I know because I, I put on cybersecurity events and I see all my different type of vendors that are there every week. And, you know, I'm happy that I'm not the person, a person that's in a situation that has to, you know, pick which, which vendor, which, which application, which software is going to help defend my company. So what's your advice on how to pick a third party vendor? Sure. So let me mention that there are about 4,000 cybersecurity companies uh, operating, um, there are a lot of potential defenses to choose from, and chances are that you'll you'll need you know a dozen or maybe even a few dozen uh, countermeasures to put in place because it's it's not the sort of thing where there's any sort of one silver bullet and it will it will protect you, um, and and because there's so many different options for protection, um, that's one of the reasons that in chapters twelve and thirteen of the book. We basically, for each of the root causes of breach, outline the classes of countermeasures that are likely going to be most effective in helping you defend your organization. Because there's so much confusion in the market, there's so many different available options, we, we said, look, let's focus on uh, the key preventative uh, countermeasures. So for instance, if you want to defend your organization against uh, being fished or having accounts getting taken over, one thing you can do is you can use hardware security keys from YubiKey, or you can use a hardware security key that's built into people's phones such that when they log into websites, um, they're, they're not relying just on a username and password. And they're also not just relying on, say, a, a two-factor code that comes to you via SMS. If your cell phone account gets compromised, well, the attackers get your two-factor codes. On the other hand, if you use hardware security tokens, you know, a key that you stick into your computer or you have to have your phone close by to your computer and there's a secret key associated with the user that's stored in a secure enclave on the phone, uh, that provides a much, much stronger defense. And when Google and Salesforce pretty much deployed um, you know, hardware security tokens, Google, for instance, has said that after deploying hardware security tokens in 2017, they have not had one successful phishing attack, even though they are regularly targeted by nation states. That is a big statement. Uh, Google, one of the largest companies um, regularly targeted by nation states, has tens of thousands of employees, if not more, and they have not had one successful phishing attack since they deployed hardware security tokens. So in chapters 12 and 13, we go over what are the countermeasures that are going to be the most scientifically effective to defend organizations against the root causes of breach. Now, let me also mention that, let's say for each of the root causes of breach, you go ahead and choose the preventive countermeasure that makes sense. 
uh, you should definitely do that. Uh, there are also a few other things that you will you will need. Uh, you will, for instance, need to make sure that you have all of your network traffic logged so that if and when there is an incident, you actually have the data to uh, figure out what happened. You know, there's some organizations that get breached and they say things like, well, we don't have any evidence that there was a successful attack. And the real question is, well, what were you logging? <laughs> um, you know, if you weren't logging anything, of course you're not going to have the evidence. And there's a saying here, and that is that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So, um, uh, you know, it's because, it, because there's so many different options and so many uh, different things you can choose from to protect your organization that in those two chapters, 12 and 13, we go through what are the countermeasures uh, that make sense for the root causes of breach that are scientifically effective uh, and provide guidance for what companies should do to, um, to, to mitigate uh, a potential breach. So backing up a little bit, I did have uh, someone make a comment that said, when we were talking about the ransomware attacks, most of these payments are in Bitcoin and not traceable. Why do governments allow this? Do governments even have a choice? You know, um, governments uh, have been thinking about cryptocurrency and whether or not it should be regulated and how much it should be regulated. Um, to an extent, um, even if uh, governments, um, you, you know, I think I, th I think it is a it is a it is an interesting topic because, to an extent, one might ask the question about in the future, will it make sense to have a digital currency, just for convenience, and also speed of commerce. So on one hand, having more digital currencies could make more transactions possible. Um, uh, and it's, it's possible to design also a digital currency that is, that is traceable and centralized. And so I think the government, to an extent, they want to see what succeeds in the market, and they want to allow and support innovation. Um, but on the other hand, you, you, you know, if we look at, uh, you know, Bitcoin, one of the one of the things about how it works is that it is it is decentralized, and um, other people might ask the question: Well, why should governments have the control of around currency? Um, and could we have a currency in which there was no single government that was in control, and, and there could potentially be some economic uh, and other benefits there? So. It's a very interesting experiment. I'm, I'm not going to claim that I know all the answers here by any means, um, but uh, you know the, these uh, these payments, um, you know, are are, uh, are 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 of course being allowed, given that governments are are analyzing and studying and seeing what what does it make sense to do and what does it not make sense to do with regards to both supporting innovation. Uh, and entrepreneurship and, um, you know, growth of the economy. Um, but, you know, mitigating fraud is also an issue. If we, if we look at credit cards, for instance, by the way, um, there's a lot of fraud that still happens with credit cards. But look at the, the boom that credit cards created for electronic commerce. So it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not an easy issue to uh, have, have a, a single answer to. Well, we could do a whole show on cryptocurrency and being we have about three and a half minutes left of the show, I, I think we'll go to your last chapter of the book and just tell us a little bit about chapter 16 and, you know, how, you know, you wrap up this book before we close, just because I'm, once we share this, we'll definitely promote your book. Um, but I need you to do that in like one minute. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll give the one minute on chapter 16. Uh, there are uh, hundreds of thousands of open cybersecurity jobs available in the U.S. and millions of uh, job openings in cybersecurity worldwide. The last chapter in the book, chapter 16, is a call to action to encourage folks to enter the cybersecurity field. Uh, and it gives advice on how people can enter the field as a security analyst uh, or 
become a security project manager or product manager or um, you know, even become a, a CISO, uh, we also need more people in the software development community, software architects, uh, to, to step in and, and uh, maybe become security architects. So uh, chapter 16 is all about how you can get from where you are now uh, to being more into the fold in cybersecurity and potentially even getting a job in the cybersecurity field. So one last message that you would like to leave with our listeners today? Sure. I guess the last message that I will mention is that it might seem like there can be a lot of doom and gloom in the cybersecurity field. It might seem like there's a new attack every day. It might seem like there's a new uh, technique that attackers can, can use every single day. Um, but the message that I'll put out there is one of uh, optimism uh, and altruism. And I believe that I don't know how long it'll take, but I believe it is possible to get to a better state for cybersecurity. Uh, I think that the number of root causes that we're dealing with here is not astronomical. Uh, I think it can, in fact, be very manageable. So I'd encourage you to learn more about the biggest breaches, defend your organization from the biggest breaches, and if you're not in the cybersecurity field, consider, consider joining uh, the fight and uh, fight the good fight with us. Dr. Neil Dasani, Daswani, he's the co-director of Sanford Advanced Cybersecurity Programs. Thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate you taking uh, the time out. We will um, definitely mark his book in our post social media on where you can find his book. And thank you everyone for joining another episode of Ant Security for All. Next week, we will have uh, James Azar. He is the CISO of the Talk Podcast, Cyber Hub Podcast. Uh, looking forward to talking to him. And everyone have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay secure, and stay well. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. Are you a cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com. Or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.